Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles. It's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When we think about Stoic philosophers, we typically think about the thinkers of ancient Greece and Rome, like Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius. But my guest, Mark Matusik, says there was an incredibly insightful Stoic philosopher who lived on the American continent in more modern times, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Matusik is the author of Lessons from an American Stoic, How Emerson Can Change Your Life. Today on the show, he shares how Stoicism and Transcendentalism overlap and how you can use Emerson's Stoic philosophy to become a nonconformist. We discuss the lessons you can learn from Emerson on developing self-reliance, embracing the strengths of your weaknesses, trusting your own genius instead of imitating others, gaining confidence from nature, compensating for the difficulties of relationships through the joy of deeper connections, living with greater courage, and more. After the show is over, check out our show notes at awm.is Emerson. All right, Mark Matusik, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. So you got a new book out called Lessons from an American Stoic, How Emerson Can Change Your Life. And this is about the great American philosopher, Ralph Waldo Emerson. I'm curious, how did you discover Ralph Waldo Emerson and how did he change your life? I was in the first year of graduate school, and I was having a very bad time in my life. I couldn't find my direction. I felt lost in academia. Uh, I was fairly depressed and anxious a lot of the time. And I happened to fall into a job as a research assistant for a professor who was writing a book about Ralph Waldo Emerson. And I barely knew his work. Just from high school, I had read a couple of essays, but it didn't really mean anything to me. And you know how when the student is ready, the teacher shows up. And when I started to read his work, something resonated in me that I hadn't encountered before. He was the first transcendental writer I had ever come across. He had a vision of human potential that was much bigger than anything I had ever uh, encountered before. And it cut through my, my depression in a way that nothing else really had. The beauty of the writing, the expansiveness of his vision, and the sense of self-reliance, which is something that I had never understood deeply before coming across Emerson, really shifted how I looked at myself and the world. I stopped blaming other people for my problems. I started looking inside myself for answers. 
I realized that even though I was, I considered myself an agnostic, an atheist, that I really did have a deep sense of spirituality in me. It wasn't an organized religious kind of spirituality, but there was definitely a sense of something bigger than myself and being connected to something larger that I had been longing for my whole life and didn't even realize it. So the book is called Lessons from an American Stoic. I've never thought of Emerson as a Stoic before. You said in the book that he was called America's original Stoic. Why is that? You know, people don't realize what a Stoic Emerson was. So much of transcendental philosophy overlaps with Stoicism. They both share this idea that we all create our own reality and that how we see is how we live. They all talked about, Remerson as well as the ancient Stoics talked about the fact that nothing can really harm you except with your own permission. You know, that how we interpret our lives has everything to do with our experience. They both talked about obstacles being opportunities, virtue as a path of happiness. The Stoics as well as Emerson shared this belief that character is destiny, that how you think, what you believe is who you become. And that's what unfolds as your destiny in life. Also, the Stoics believe, you know, God is in everything, like the universe. He's there all over the place. And like transcendentalism had a similar idea. That's exactly it. Yeah, that the God in you connects to the God in all things. That non-dual metaphysical belief was very much present with the Stoics. And it was Emerson's whole life. His entire life's work was about helping people recognize that they have, that we all have in ourselves, access to a bigger mind, what he called the oversoul or the overmind. We all have access to that. And the Stoics believe that as well. And that when we tap into that deep wisdom in ourselves, we know much more than we're aware of, and we're much more powerful than we give ourselves credit for. So Emerson is famous for his essay called Self-Reliance. It's all about being an individual. I think everyone's probably read that at some point, maybe in high school and college. What did Emerson mean exactly by self-reliance? And what do you think people get wrong about his idea of self-reliance? You know, this is huge. This may be the biggest takeaway from my book is that we have misunderstood what he meant by self-reliance. You know, self-reliance has so often been misinterpreted as isolationism, arrogance, egotism. But Emerson said that there is nothing so weak as an egotist and that self-reliance is reliance on God. Now, whether we think of God as being God up in the sky of traditional religion or just spirit, uh, realizing that self-reliance is a reliance on the thing in us that's bigger than our personality. And when you get that, it takes you out of the victim seat. You know, so many of us live our lives putting our power outside of ourselves, feeling like we're victims of circumstance. And self-reliance is the antithesis of that. It says that we can take back our power by recognizing that we have a choice in how we respond to circumstances. We have a choice in how we see ourselves and the world. And when you develop what psychologists call an internal locus of control instead of an external locus of control, it shifts the way you live. You start to look inside for guidance instead of always seeking authority outside yourself. And you also learn to know yourself and to think for yourself. You know, of course, the first 
premise of all philosophy is to know thyself. And that's very much at the heart of self-reliance. Without self-knowledge, we can't live empowered lives. So what you've done in your book, Lessons from an American Stoic, is I think you did a great job. Is You looked at all of Emerson's work, his essays, his letters that he wrote to various friends, his journals, and extracted lessons on how we can become more self-reliant in an Emersonian sort of way. And you developed, created 12 lessons. I want to talk about some of these lessons today on how we can become more self-reliant. And the first one, you mentioned character is destiny, or you called it character is everything. And in this section, you talked about Emerson's idea of compensation. How can Emerson's idea of compensation help us discover our character? Compensation basically says that for every sweet, there is a sour, that for every weakness, there is a strength. And understanding that there's a duality in human life that we need to make space for if we want to be whole people. That means incorporating what we call the shadow into our self-awareness and into our our self-acceptance. So compensation means accepting your own contradictions and understanding that, as he said, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, that when we're constantly aspiring to be consistent, monolithic, that leads to conformity, And it leads to a very unrealistic expectation of who we are. The fact is we're all mixed bags and that's what makes us unique. That's what gives us our originality. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is that we spend so much of our lives judging ourselves for the things that we can't accept or that we wish were different and pushing them away. So what Emerson is all about embracing all of who we are and then using that mixed bag that motley crew of characters inside ourselves, using all of that to become as unique and particular and original as we can be in our lives. So it's not about smoothing out the rough edges and it's not about hiding the things in us that we're ashamed of. It's about owning them and seeing how they can inform us. Because another thing he said and compensation is about is is understanding that our faults, our losses, our disappointments are also teachers yeah, I think that's a, a really useful idea of understanding even personal weaknesses you might have. It might be the source of your strength. You know, someone who might think, well, I'm just not very extroverted, right? I can't put myself out there and be sort of like the life of the party. Well, then you, well, Emerson would say, well, what sorts of good things come from that? Like what does allow you, maybe you're a little bit more introspective. Maybe you are able to connect better on a more intimate level, one-on-one with people. So I like that idea. And you see him in Emerson's writing, like he struggled with that. He, he was always pointing out his flaws and, you know, he'd often compare himself maybe to Thoreau, right? He said, well, Thoreau's out there living, living the ideas of transcendentalism better than I am. But I think, you know, one of the strengths that Emerson had, you know, Thoreau was out there looking at bullfrogs and building sheds, but Emerson was a great writer. He was a good public speaker. So even though he wasn't really good at the hands-on, you know, self-reliance of transcendentalism, it was a strength because he, he was able to be a great speaker and spread these ideas of transcendentalism. Yeah, that's, no, that's exactly right. And he was very hard on himself. He had been a, a really insecure little boy. Nobody was expected very much of him. He had these very popular, good-looking brothers who were outgoing. And he was this chubby, introverted little guy who nobody expected much of. So from the time he was a little boy, 
he had an inferiority complex and problems with self-esteem. And he struggled with that, with that throughout his life. And it's part of what made him such a great writer is that he was able to be so candid about himself and so human with himself. And as you said, there were many things that he couldn't do well. He couldn't build a shed on his own land that he loaned to Thoreau to build the shed at Walden Pond. He couldn't do that. And he did envy Thoreau for a lot of his hands-on abilities, but Emerson was a far greater writer. He was a much deeper thinker. Uh, and Thoreau took many of his ideas from Emerson. So this isn't to take anything away from Thoreau. He was a, a unique uh, and powerful soul. But Thoreau also had, of course, his many, many flaws, not being able to connect with other people, not being willing to put his work into the world in a way that was satisfying to him. Now, there were ways that Thoreau felt like a failure a as well. And what Emerson is saying is that trying to be someone else's idea of what a powerful, strong, successful person looks like is a disaster. You know, he said that imitation is suicide and that you reach a certain point in your life that you realize that if you don't start to follow your own, your own genius, that voice of guidance inside yourself, you're never going to reach the destination that is meant for you. All right. So another lesson is you are how you see. And this is all about perspective. How did Emerson expand his perspective on himself and in his life? Through self-inquiry. That really was his primary means of self-discovery. And it's also the path of self-reliance is understanding oneself. One way that he did that was through journal writing. He turned inward, as did the ancient Stoics in his journal and exploring his inner life, asking himself the kinds of deep questions that we don't often ask in the, you know, everyday conversation. You know, who am I? What am I doing here? What do I mean? You know, what is this life for? Those are the kinds of questions that he explored in his journal. And it gave him a deeper sense of who he was. And he came to see that, uh, as he put it, people do not seem to realize that their opinion of the world is also a confession of their character. He came to see that the way he was seeing the world uh, said more about him than it did the outside world. You know, he said, what is life but the angle of vision? So it's all about questioning our angle of vision, questioning our perspective in an ongoing way. Because of course, what's true for you today may not be true for you next week. And that's why self-inquiry, particularly journal writing, is a practice. You know, we're always starting over. And that's why you can sit and ask the same questions week after week, month after month, and get different answers because we are constantly changing and our needs are changing and who we are shifts. As Emerson said, the same world is a hell and a heaven, depending on how we look at it. And that goes back to that law of compensation, understanding that everything has both sides to it, depending on the way you frame it and what it means to you. Yeah, the journal writing, that was really important to Emerson. He called his journal The Wide World. And then one of the first things he did when he met Thoreau, he said, are you keeping a journal? And Thoreau at the time yeah. wasn't keeping a journal. And Emerson's like, you should keep a journal. And because Thoreau started keeping a journal, like we have all this great writing because of that. And that's another common thing with Emerson and the Stoics. You know, a lot of people have probably read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, those are basically, those are journal entries. Like those were for himself. They weren't meant to be public writings. They were just him writing in a journal, telling him to get his act together. And so there's another stoic connection right there. 
Yeah, it's absolutely true. We wouldn't have the meditations if Marcus Aurelius hadn't kept a journal. We wouldn't have Walden if Thoreau hadn't kept a journal when he was at Walden Ponds. You know, a lot of the what later became the book Walden were, were journal entries. So this is really about understanding that we have this tool at our disposal, this tool of self-inquiry. And you don't have to be a great writer to do that. It's not about creating beautiful prose. It's about having the willingness to ask deep questions and tell the truth. And that's something, of course, we don't often do. You know, we, we think that we do. We go through our lives being mostly honest people trying to, you know, do the right thing. But the fact is that we all dissemble and lie every day of our lives in subtle and not so subtle ways. And what journal writing helps you to do is cut through that. Because, of course, you can't lie to yourself in quite the same way as you do to other people. And that's the beauty of self-inquiry, is that you challenge your own narratives. And because, of course, we are story-making animals. That's what we do. It's how we survive in the world. We create interpretations of our experience. But the interpretation is not the truth. You know, what happened is not your idea about what happened. So what journal writing helps you do is get between those two things and tweak them apart. So you see, ah, this is what happened, and that's what I told myself about what happened. And when you can disidentify from the story, that's when you begin to awaken to what is true and a different, a more authentic way of being in the world. So another lesson is build your own world. And this is all about becoming a nonconformist. Transcendentalists were big on this idea of nonconformity. What did Emerson mean by nonconformity? Because that's a word people throw around a lot. Well, I'm a nonconformist, but I think Emerson had a deeper meaning to that. He did. And it goes to what we've been saying about trusting this voice inside us. We all have what he called genius. That comes from the, the Romans were the first to use the word genius. And they, what they mean by that is our muse or the tutelary deity that we come into life with that is unique to us. And the only purpose of your genius, it's also called the daemon by the Greeks, is to guide you toward your own fruition. And so the nonconformist is devoted to listening to the voice of their own genius and trusting their own intuition and their own inner guidance. You know, Emerson said to be yourself in, in a world that's constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. You know, that we have to swim against the tide because, of course, society doesn't want a citizenry of nonconformists. Society survives by people, you know, coloring inside the lines, doing what they're told to do and being socialized. And, of course, we need to be socialized as social animals. We need to cooperate. That's all true. But when it comes to making the deep decisions in our own lives and the choices that matter to us, it's a disaster to try to follow someone else's daemon, someone else's muse. We end up living somebody else's life. You know, Emerson says that society is not your friend, and it's really important to remember that. So it doesn't mean being antisocial necessarily, but it means understanding where your power lies. Uh, your power lies in yourself. As Emerson said, my authority comes from my nonconformity. We don't want to be living according to other people's standards of goodness and thereby becoming hypocritical, which is what happens a lot. Folks live outwardly one way, but inside there's something else. He's trying to unify the inside with the outside so that we are whole and it heals the division and the conflict that comes up when we are trying to impersonate other people. 
Yeah, Emerson called that double consciousness. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And in that chapter about nonconformity, you make the case that both Thoreau and Emerson were examples of nonconformity in their own way. You know, Thoreau, he really embraced this idea of nonconformity in a way that even Emerson, and what we were talking about this earlier, how Emerson kind of envied Thoreau. And there's this great quote that Emerson said about Thoreau's embrace of transcendentalism. He said, Thoreau gives me in flesh and blood my own ethics. He is far more real and daily practically obeying them than I. And then Emerson also said this of Thoreau, he walked abreast with his days and felt no shame in not studying a profession, for he does not postpone his life, but lives already. But, you know, Emerson could be a nonconformist in his own way. When he was a minister, his thoughts on God started to change. And then he gave this address to the Harvard Divinity School where he said some stuff that upset a lot of people. Like he said some things that people thought were heretical. And so he was denounced. But even though he was denounced, like he never he never replied to the criticism. He just let his words stand. And I mean, he wasn't invited back to speak at Harvard again. I think it was like for something like 30 years. So that took some chutzpah too. Oh, it absolutely did. No, he was not, he was not a coward. Uh, it, it, Thoreau was an extreme. Thoreau was somebody who truly lived outside the margins of what you would call normality uh, in a way that Emerson didn't. Emerson was a, was a pretty solid bourgeois. He was married. He had children. He lived in the same house. You know, Thoreau rejected many of the things we associate with uh, civilization. But Emerson was a very brave man. He was a seventh generation minister. He had this amazing job at 28 as the head of the second church in Boston, a very uh, prestigious job. And he gave up the pulpit. He walked away from it. And that was, you know, that was uh, a scandal that he did that. People called him a pagan and a pantheist, but he didn't care. So it wasn't that he backed away from other people's judgment. It's that he was a more self-conscious soul than Thoreau. He was more circumspect. So they had a different kind of courage. But that's important too, because one thing that Emerson says is never try to imitate another person's courage, that we all have our own version of what brave looks like. So we need not try to imitate other people's way of being in the world. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. There are millions of workers, but there's only one you with only one body. So why wear it down with lesser power tools? You deserve ease. You deserve safety. You deserve Bosch. With Bosch tools, you can raise the X-lock, hammer drill, or two-in-one with pride and know that you deserve it. Now lower it. Safety first. Bosch tools, what hard workers deserve. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? They have everything you could possibly want like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. So I got a tree from Fast Growing Trees. I had a tree in my front yard that had to cut down a big giant oak tree because it died and I wanted to put a maple tree there, one that turned bright red during the fall. So I found that tree, made sure that it fit the climate that we're at here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Ordered it. A few days later, I got the tree in a box. It's crazy. They can send a tree in a box. And I planted it. A few weeks after I planted it, uh, it's already starting to sprout leaves. Uh, so I think in a few years, I'm going to have that bright red 
maple tree that happens in the fall. I'm really looking forward to that. So if you want to try fast growing trees out this spring, they have the best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off with their first purchase when using code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Have you always struggled with finding time to manage your finances? At the end of a busy week, the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting all of your expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you no longer use. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. My favorite feature on Rocket Money is finding those unwanted subscriptions. If you're like me, you have a bunch of those things you signed up for but forgot about. Uh, Streaming services, newsletters, maybe some fitness plans. You just connect your account to the app. Rocket Money finds the recurring subscription fees, and then you can easily cancel them from the app. It's a really cool, cool service. They also have a service that can help you lower your bill. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with the customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. That's a lot of money. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. There have been a lot of amazing people as guests on this podcast, but what if you want to go deeper? If you're looking somewhere to learn from the most remarkable people, that's Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 200 classes to pick from with new classes added every month, and they have over 180 world-class instructors, and a lot of them are former AOM podcast guests. For example, Chris Voss has a class on negotiation, Jocko Willink has a class on leadership, and Malcolm Gladwell has a class on writing. With Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. One class that I've really enjoyed is the one with Chris Voss on negotiation. My favorite lesson in that class was the lesson on tactical empathy, something we talked about in the podcast that we did with him a long time ago, uh, but he goes in deeper with this. And besides just the lectures, you get exercises so you can actually put this stuff into practice. Right now, listeners will get an additional 15% off annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. And now back to the show. Uh, so another lesson, one of my favorites was without confidence, the universe is against me. What did Emerson mean by confidence? You know, confidence comes from the, the root word for with faith. And for him, confidence was having faith in that thing in us that knows, that genius, that voice of guidance, which is connected to the divine, however you think of the divine. So for him, confidence had to do with tapping into the thing in us that's bigger than our personality. He talked about us having a giant within us, and that when we discover that giant, it frees us of so many of our fears. And also, when you have confidence, as I'm sure you've seen in your own life, when you As he said, once you make a decision, the universe conspires to make it happen. So confidence has charisma connected to it. Confidence has a kind of a magnetism. And it means being rooted in what is true for you, which is something that's always changing. So that's why consistency is an overrated virtue, according to Emerson, because what you care about today isn't what you're going to care about uh, in a couple of weeks. And confidence comes from being true to your own changes and your own changeability. 
and being connected to that internal locus of control that I was talking about earlier. Instead of feeling like life is happening to us, it's more like life is happening through us. And we are not the victims of circumstance. We can always shift our relationship to our circumstances and gauge our responses. And this, of course, is the heart of Stoicism, is learning to gauge your responses to the outside world and to external conditions. And then you realize that external conditions aren't running your life. Your mind is running your life. And how you respond to those conditions is what determines your well-being. And you also talk at the beginning of that chapter how Emerson's idea of confidence was also tied up with this idea of enthusiasm. But it's the, the Greek idea of enthusiasm. What is that idea? Well, the Greek word root for enthusiasm means with God. It means filled with God. So once again, it's connected to spirit. Whatever you a person calls spirit, you know, many people are allergic to the G word. They can't stand religion. That's fine. It, enthusiasm is connected to passion and spirit, the thing that enlarges us, that takes us beyond what, what we're capable of. Enthusiasm is a real joy in living and connecting to the power that's bigger than we are. And that's, of course, connected to nature. Nature is one of our primary means of tapping into that, that higher form of energy. And that's what enthusiasm is. That's what confidence is. And that's why, of course, he, like Thoreau, talks so much about learning from nature, spending time in nature, remembering that you are nature seeing the lessons that nature can teach you. He talks about watching ants on the ground and learning from their industriousness or learning tranquility from the, the clear blue sky or learning durability and stamina from the way the water hits a rock and the rock can just bear the water hitting it over and over and over. We learn from nature. We learn these lessons about how to be a whole human being from connecting to the natural world. And one of his sacrilegious ideas was saying that we are nature and that since nature is God on earth, or the representation of the divine on earth, we also are divine. And that was blasphemy for him to say that. But it's really the root of Emerson's wisdom is that as parts of nature, we share all the qualities of nature. And that includes the ability to free ourselves and to adapt and the resilience and the ability to regenerate and recreate ourselves. All of these are visible in the natural world. And when you connect to that, it gives you enormous uh, vitality and confidence and enthusiasm. Okay, so confidence was required to live a self-reliant life and confidence required enthusiasm or vitality. And you have a whole chapter about vitality. It's called a stream of power runs through you. And that's that whole idea of, life is streaming. We're part of nature. We can tap into that. But what's interesting about Emerson's life, he wrote these just really inspiring prose about vitality and confidence. You know, one of my wife's and I's favorite quotes from Emerson is, God will not have his work made manifest by cowards. It's very bracing and very stirring. But if you look at his personal life, his private life, it seemed like this idea of confidence, enthusiasm, and vitality was something that he struggled with. What did that look like in his life? Well, first of all, physical vitality was a struggle for him. He was never a strong man physically. He had tuberculosis from the time he was a young boy. He used to envy the vitality of the people around him. 
He had to measure out his energy very carefully to do the work that he wanted to do. And he was constantly lamenting his lack of animal power, he used to call it. His, his animal forces were weak. And yet he recognized that that vitality is something that's streaming through us. Uh, as he said, man is a conductor of a whole stream of electricity. So we are electric beings. And this, of course, reminds you of Whitman and singing the body electric. Uh, this was very much an idea in the air at that time. And vitality is uh, that force that through the green fuse drives the flower, as Dylan Thomas put it, is something that we all have access to and we need to learn to husband it. And that's something Emerson talks about a lot. That goes to nonconformity as well, because we can't fritter our energies away trying to imitate other people. We need to be clear about how our own stream of electricity operates. And his was, his was intermittent, and it was not as strong as it might have been. So he had to be very careful about it, feeding himself well, uh, physically, spiritually, and intellectually in order to strengthen himself because because it was something that was not didn't come easily to him. I think that's interesting about Emerson how he lacked that physical vitality and as a consequence he may have realized the importance like you you know how important something is when you lack it, right? And so he understood the importance exactly. of vitality. Yeah. And I think also he he I think he was trying to perhaps transfer kind of bring up this idea of not just physical vitality but also spiritual vitality. Like if you can't be vital in your physical life, you can live a strenuous vital life spiritually. And what's interesting, Frederick Nietzsche was an admirer of Emerson. And what's interesting about Nietzsche's work is, you know, he's known for the Ubermensch and the Overman, and it's all very bracing and vital sort of prose. But like Emerson, Nietzsche, he was frail. He was sick. Like he spent most of his life just traveling to different places, to different sanatoriums and hotels to recuperate from different illnesses. Nietzsche realized he lacked physical vitality. So he admired it, but I think he also was trying to come up with this idea of spiritual vitality as well. Yeah, that's true. You know, Hildegard of Bingen, the 12th century German mystic, talks about viriditas, that green force that flows through us and that animates the universe. It's also the force of eros. And that's what we're talking about. So there's physical vitality. Do you have a strong body or a weak body? And what's your physiology? And then there's this spiritual vitality that we all partake of. And regardless of the state of your body, that can be uh, extremely strong. And it was in Emerson. His spiritual vitality never wavered. It was his physical vitality that he worried about. And that was such a struggle for him. But Learning to nurture that viriditas, that green force in us, that erotic force in us, has a lot to do with how effectively we live and the joy we're able to feel and how much we're able to connect with other people, how engaged we are. Without that, it's very difficult to be in the world in a way that matters without having that spiritual vitality, which has to do with attention, it has to do with compassion and empathy, and it also has to do with interest. The thing I love about Emerson is he was so interested uh, in life and learning. And you see that with most people who have that kind of vitality we're talking about. They may not be physically strong, But when they have that enthusiasm, that vitality that's connected to spirit, 
it can go a long way to making up for whatever you know debility there is in the body. Yeah, we have one of our mottos in our house and our family is "Don't be a potato head," and <laughs> and basically it's we don't want like I don't want to be that way, and we don't want our kids to be the sort of type of person you're in a class and someone's giving a, you know, a lecture on some topic where you just disengage and you're just kind of looking at the person slack jawed and not really paying attention. I want them to be like engaged with it. Like there's, there's an opportunity to like learn something. So yeah, I think you take away that from Emerson. He wasn't a spiritual potato head. He was not a spiritual potato head, not at all. He was fascinated by life. He was fascinated by people and he was a keen observer of things. Outwardly, you had this well-brought-up you know, Yankee, you know, Boston Brahmin, but inside, he was a passionate man with dramatic emotions and big upheavals and big joys and big sorrows. And that aliveness comes through in his work, and it comes through in his understanding uh, of human nature. You have a lesson on relationships called Thorn in My Flesh. And Emerson, if you read his writings, he had a very he had high ideals for relationships, but it seemed like he struggled with them for most of his life. What did Emerson struggle with when it came to relationships? You know, this really was his tragic flaw. If you look at it from the sort of old heroic Greek way, his tragic flaw was his inability to be intimate. You know, he had tremendous difficulty connecting emotionally with other people. And he had a lot of grief over that. He said, the love you withhold is the pain that you carry. And he carried a lot of pain around his withholding of love, even from the people he cared about most. At one point in the journal, he says, even in, at home, he looks at the people in his own house as across an abyss. So he was profoundly alienated in a part of himself and very... Uh, withdrawn and, and shy. And so for him, relationships were an ongoing mystery and challenge. He had a very close relationship with Margaret Fuller, who was many people thought the most learned woman of her day. Uh, and it was a tortured, difficult relationship. And he, they pined for each other and they had these intense, long intellectual conversations. And he, he worshiped her, he idolized her in certain ways, but then he'd be in the same room with her and he'd feel himself being repulsed. And, and part of it was that she had the hots for him and she was constantly trying to seduce him and he was a married man and he was not attracted to her. Uh, but part of it was this discomfort with emotion and connection, uh, something around that, that he could do it in his mind and, and he could do it in the abstract. But when it came to actually expressing it to the individual, showing his own vulnerabilities, that was very, very hard for him. And he thanked Margaret afterward. He had to finally pull back from the friendship, though he, he never stopped loving her. He had to pull back from the, the friendship. But he thanked her after that for uh, starting to crack through his resistance. He said to her, I'll never go quite back to my old Arctic ways. So he knew how chilly he could be uh, and he didn't want to be that way, but that was his, in certain ways, his temperament and his, his nature. And he was always trying to open up more and overcome that, uh, that distance that he felt from other people. Well, him and Thoreau, they had a really close friendship, but it was often strained. What was that like? That was a very strained relationship. Yeah, they, he he loved Henry, uh, and Henry loved him, and there was a lot of uh, tension between them. 
because they were very critical of one another for all the reasons that we've been talking about. You know, there are ways that Emerson didn't think that Thoreau was living up to his potential. And there are ways that, that Thoreau thought that Emerson was a prig and couldn't loosen up and needed to break free of his bourgeois, you know, lifestyle. They judged each other. They had a very contentious relationship. Uh, but Emerson was, at the end of the day, Thoreau's real mentor. You know, he was seven years older than Thoreau. They weren't quite contemporaries. So they admired each other tremendously. And then they would get into the kind of emotional confusion and haggling that a lot of close friends do. You know, everyone is imperfect. And the closer you get to them, the bigger their imperfections become, the more obvious they become. Uh, and he was very aware of the ways that Henry was unkind and the ways that he refused to, to join in. You know, Henry would never join in with other people, even when it would have benefited him and them. So Henry, Henry could be a bit withholding in, in a way that Emerson wasn't. Emerson was generous spiritually. He couldn't always be generous emotionally, but he was generous spiritually. Henry was not. And he was cantankerous and very, very judgmental. And he had a way of kind of finding the fault and the flaw in everything that annoyed Emerson. You know, Emerson was somebody who tried to look for the good and the true and the beautiful. Henry was somebody who looked for the faulty, the hypocritical, and the, and the, and the problematic. So they were very different temperamentally that way. And it became an issue very often in their friendship, which was kind of off and on. They were always in each other's lives but they were not always as close as they might have been. So what lessons do you think we take from Emerson on developing good relationships? The one that speaks to me most is the importance of intellectual connection. And that doesn't mean that all relationships have to be intellectual. But for him, for example, having deep conversation in a relationship was the highest ideal. It was his drug of choice. You could say he loved conversation. He wanted to know what people he cared about thought, what they uh, struggled with, what their ideals were, you know, the places that scared them. He wanted to know people in a very deep way. And that didn't always mean that he could be as emotionally demonstrative as he wanted to be. But he really wanted to know, he cared about the inner life of the other person. And that's something that we in our relationships don't always focus as much on as, as we might. In friendships, we tend to because friends are connected because they tend to be connected because they share mutual interests. But for example, in intimate relationships with, with a lover or, or a spouse, you know, to remember to care about the other person's inner life. You know, who are you today? What do you believe in? What really means something to you? He was always encouraging us to engage on that level. Uh, and that's really useful to remember, uh, particularly these days in the age of ADD, when we don't often give the people in our lives the attention that they deserve or that relationships require to deepen. You know, something Emerson always talked about is that relationships take time to deepen and to form. And they were always looking for instant gratification. And he really cared about the deeper values of a relationship that's based on knowing the other person, knowing them the way we know as seekers, 
you know, we understand what really makes uh, the other person tick. Uh, so another lesson is death of fear. It's all about courage. And in this chapter, you recount a moment in Emerson's life that would change him profoundly. His first wife, Ellen, died, and then it put Emerson in this deep, deep depression that lasted over a year. But then he did something to get him out of that funk. What did Emerson do to get out of his depression? This was shocking. He couldn't pull out of it. He was having suicidal thoughts. And nobody could help him. And one day he realized that he had to shake himself out of this state that he was in, this frozen state. And so he went to the, without telling anyone, he went to the cemetery where Ellen was entombed and he opened her coffin to look at her face. He realized that he needed to face his greatest fear, which was seeing her dead body and really getting that she was gone. Uh, she had been the love of his life. She died when she was 19 after they were married only a year and a half. Uh, he nursed her through tuberculosis. It was a horrible thing and he needed to face the horror. Uh, and when he did that, it, it, it shook him up. He changed profoundly. He didn't tell anyone about this. And there's a very short mention of it in his journal. But after that, uh, he quit the ministry. He went to Europe. He met some of his great literary heroes and he started to publish and his life shifted uh, profoundly. And as Robert Richardson, his biographer said, he, after that, that fall into depression, he would never again forget the unregarded epiphanies of every blessed day. He realized that life had even deeper value than he had realized before this grief drowned him in it. And so it shook him up. It shook him back, you know, back to life. Uh, and it was you know, the best thing he could have done for himself. So what can we learn from that experience on facing our fears to become more courageous? moving toward our fears head on and not avoiding them as much as possible. What we do and why fear gets bigger is that we resist it and we try to avoid it. And the more we do that, the bigger it gets, the more powerful the fears become. So as Emerson said, knowledge is the antidote to fear. So the more we know about our fears, the less control they have over us. So for him, for example, he needed to know what Ellen's body looked like then. What was this thing that he was grieving? And when he did that, it it kind of cut his fear off at the knees. And that's something that we can all do is instead of when a fear comes up, instead of running away from it, we can look at it directly and say, what are you? You know, when you do that, you, the fear diminishes immediately. The, the spiritual teacher Ramdas used to say that fears are like, instead of running away from our fears and turning them into these gigantic, you know, these gigantic monsters, we can just see that they're little schmooze and we can invite them in for tea. You know, so instead of giving them all this power, we can say, oh, you're not, you're not all that. Come here, come in, sit down, let's have some tea. And so we defang our fears that way. That's how, how we reduce our fears. So it's important to face our fears and it's important to understand that they don't have to define us. Emerson was very big on the idea that what happens to us is the external life. And so grief, for example, he had a lot of grief in his life, but he realized that grief belongs to the external life. So things happen to us and they pass. And whatever is impermanent doesn't have a last, the lasting ability to uh, disempower us or to take away our, our joy for living. 
So understanding that fear is out there and it doesn't have to run us was a huge insight for him personally and in his teaching. And he got that from his an aunt, Aunt Mary. She was this really staunch Protestant and she would always tell her nephew to always, 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 always do what you are afraid to do all the time. And I guess Emerson embraced that. Yes, and Mary Moody Emerson was a piece of work. Uh, she was a strict Calvinist. She was a religious fanatic by any you know, estimation. She used to travel in a burial shroud. So in case she died, she could go right to her maker. She slept in a bed that was shaped like a coffin. You know, she was a real eccentric. But one of her strengths was her fearlessness and her ability to really push her nephews to confront the things that scared them the most. And she was his biggest influence when he was growing up. She lived with the family and she was his great spiritual tutor, you know, as well as his tutor in life in many ways. And she, she lived fearlessly. She also was a woman in that age who lived in many ways like a man and couldn't care less about the conventions of the time and what a woman was supposed to do or not allowed to do. So she was a role model for him around originality and fearlessness. And here again, Emerson said to be really strong, we must adhere to our own means and not attempt to adopt another's courage. So while he could admire his aunt, Mary Moody Emerson, he was not his aunt. He needed to find his own courage and find the thing, the way, his own path to self-empowerment. And this was an ongoing process. He sometimes fell short and he would recriminate himself for his perceived failures. And then he would try harder next time. So he was a work in progress like all of us. Yeah. I love that idea of there's different types of courage based on your character. And he said this, his great quote, there is a courage of manners in private assemblies and another in public assemblies, a courage which enables one man to speak masterly to a hostile company, whilst another man who can easily face a cannon's mouth dares not open his own. And he said, like, those are all different types of courage you can have. You got to find what your courage is good at and, and lean into that. Well, Mark, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Thanks. It's wonderful to talk to you. Well, people can go to my website, which is markmatusic.com and check out my, my work there. I also have a, a global online community for self-inquiry, which is called the Seekers Forum. So people can go to theseekersforum.com and learn more about what we do there. Fantastic. Well, Mark Matusic, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much. My guest today is Mark Matusic. He's the author of the book, Lessons from an American Stoic. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about Mark's work at his website, markmatusic.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Emerson, where you can find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast, the Art of Manliness podcast hosts guests from a wide range of fields, so you can learn more about a wide range of topics. In the same week, we might discuss the rise and fall of the golden age of action heroes and the philosophy of Ralph Waldo Emerson. If you enjoy the ever-fresh variety of the AOM podcast, consider taking a minute to leave the show a review. I greatly appreciate all the generous folks who do so. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you time to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. 
start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.